I came across this quote just on Friday, which was Epiphany, which I will share a little bit more about in just a moment. But Richard Rohr <clears throat> says this, a good journey begins with knowing where you are and being willing to go somewhere else. That just grabbed me. A good journey begins with knowing where you are, but being willing to go somewhere else. Epiphany is a day when we remember a journey, actually two journeys. Christ's journey to earth and the Magi following this star that announces to the world, to the Gentiles, to the entire cosmos, that God has come and their journey to worship the Christ child. Epiphany celebrated on January 6th, which was on Friday, so I guess belated happy Epiphany or merry Epiphany. I'm not sure what we're supposed to say. John, do you know what we're supposed to say to each other on Epiphany? Whatever you don't know. You, you don't know. <laughs> I did not grow up in a tradition that really followed the church calendar. Obviously, Christmas and Easter were there, but Epiphany and, and several of the other celebrations and uh, and events we just didn't follow. That was something the Catholics, Lutherans, and Presbyterians did, but not us true Christians, the non-denominational Christians. We didn't do that kind of stuff. And so if you would have asked me what Epiphany was, I probably would have said it is a stroke of genius. It's a great idea. And if you would have asked me in the context of the church, I quickly would have added, and Jesus, which is always the right answer, was God's stroke of genius. I had no clue what Epiphany was. And perhaps some of you have heard that word, but maybe didn't grow up with it as well. So I thought it was important to at least share that Epiphany is the announcement to the world that Christ has come. I want to, well, I'll just get the cat out of the bag. The first part of this message is a giant spoiler alert. We are going to look at Advent and the Epiphany and I'm going to dispel some of the things that maybe we've commonly come to believe. Um, there's no children in here, okay? So I'm going to stay away from maybe some other uh, fictional characters that we might believe in. But, but listen to how Matthew chapter 2 begins. <clears throat> After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Spoiler number one, your nativities are wrong. There was like, oh. How many of you in your little nativities, now that they are all packed away back into the basement or the attic perhaps, have everybody all piled in the little manger. You've got shepherds and angels and magi and camels, and you've got other animals, and of course Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus all piled in the manger. That just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gone down like that. Could you imagine a mom having a child? You wrap them in cloths. You look at literally the face of God, this little angel that has just been born to you. You lay him in a manger... And then there's a knock at your manger cave door, and it's shepherds. And then, boom, angels show up. And all of a sudden, you've got these Eastern, these maybe Oriental, these wise men who have come, and there's camels in a caravan, and everyone is clamoring in, and you've not even eaten dinner yet as a new mom. <clears throat> it would have been a disaster. 
If you read Matthew chapter 2, you will actually find three clues that tell you that the Magi would have come a little later, probably not on that first night. You're going to have to read it. I'm not going to tell you, Um, but you'll just have to read it. So let me say a little bit more about these mysterious Magi, these wise men. I think it's interesting that the first story we read after the birth of Jesus is almost a whole chapter on these men who came from the East. Men who weren't necessarily believers, they traveled a long distance to offer homage to a new king born in Judea. They entered Jerusalem with a large enough caravan to obviously create a stir in the city. Herod is a little bent out of shape. The chief priests and the religious leaders are bent out of shape. The city was talking about who these men were, and they're talking about a new king. They go to Herod's palace. Because where would you find a king but in a royal place, in a royal palace? But Jesus is not there. And so he's, they, they're sent off and to look for him. These magi were astrologers from the royal court, from the king of Persia. Spoiler alert too, they were not kings. Now we've got real problems with some of our Christmas songs. Uh, This tradition that they were kings grew up centuries afterward because there are Old Testament prophecies that say kings would worship the Messiah. And so if you do a couple hundred years of the telephone game, which I know they didn't have back then, what you get is the the blending of the story of these wise men and kings who would worship the Messiah coming together. We also don't know that there were three of them. That's spoiler number three. There were three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or as our family shares when we read the, the story of Advent, gold, franco mints, and myrrh. That came accidentally out of one of my children when they were like five or six years old, and it's stuck ever since. But Scripture doesn't tell us how many there were. We've assumed or we've played on that there were three, and even later in church tradition, these, they were given three names, of which we also don't know. Um. Part of the job description of these magi would would be to make the king of Persia look good. It was customary to send gifts and congratulations to new rulers in other realms. But the king of Persia would refer to himself as the king of kings. Make no mistake, there is but one high king, and that's the king of Persia, at least in their tradition. And so they come to pay homage, but what's interesting is they come and they actually find themselves worshiping this new king as an infant. Another interesting factoid is that the Bible condemned divination, and astrology would have been in the umbrella of divination, but isn't it interesting that the God who created the cosmos, the universe, does something astronomical, uses a star because that's where the pagans were looking to announce that he has burst into his creation in a new way. I think there is a resounding message for the church to say, let us not give up, but to actually pursue with cultural relevance and sensitivity and an uncompromising commitment to outreach and missions to go where the people are looking because of great light has dawned. 
Shepherds, I could understand why they would go, <clears throat> got the angels told them to. I can understand why angels would have gone to worship Jesus. God would have told them to go. But the Magi, I always wondered, like, why? Why would they go? And especially, why would they go when they did? Why not wait until Jesus was a little older to where he could at least talk? Or perhaps when he comes into power, so then at least the king of Persia would look really good when they brought these gifts to him. But they go right away. And I think the answer, I think why they went was because of hope. You see, they were looking, they were watching, they were anticipating, they were perhaps hoping for something. And when it dawned, they went. I think perhaps we do the same thing. Perhaps God has put something in us that pulls us forward, that makes us look at the horizon, to help us realize that the point of the journey we are on is not necessarily the place where we want to be or even where we're going to end up, but yet we're pulled towards something more, something that will be fully realized later. Steve and Aaron, our student ministry staff, uh, last week introduced us to the whole message series of hope. <clears throat> and they reminded us that Christians live with a faithful hope because of our faith. It's only God who can change character. It is God who can supply the grace when a second chance, when new beginnings are needed. And it is God's plan and promise to one day make all things new. Over the course of this month, we are going to delve deeper into the nature of hope, the nature of hope that, that fills our hearts and our imaginations. But before we do, we need to untangle some of the, the myths, untangle some of the misunderstandings, even false views of how our world and our culture and even sometimes our own theology has approached Christian hope. And I want to do that this morning by asking two questions, by correcting two misconceptions or worldviews, and I want to end by sharing from Scripture the true nature of Christian hope, and all of that in just 15 minutes. So let me ask you two questions, and I want you to answer each of these questions. I'll pause after each one. And I want you to recognize the answer that comes into your mind when I ask each of these questions. The first one is this. What is the ultimate Christian hope? Or to rephrase it, you're a Christian. What is your ultimate hope? Okay? Do you have an answer? Don't share it. Just hold on to it. And the second question is this. What hope is there for change, for rescue, for transformation, for new possibilities in the world right now, in the present world? What is there for hope of change in our world today? Now, many people, when they would answer this question, would have probably two very different kinds of answers. <clears throat> in fact, someone might ask those questions, I guess maybe they go together, but really those seem like even two very different questions. What's my hope as a Christian, and what's the hope for the transformation, the change of this world, uh, your answers may not be closely aligned. I think they need to be very aligned. In fact, there may be the same answer for both. 
So let me untangle two of the myths, two of the worldviews that have really, I think, entangled themselves around even what we believe as Christians. The first is that of the transitory soul. There is a famous Greek philosopher that lived several hundred years before Jesus. His name was Plato. Plato believed that the physical world, space, time, matter, the things you could touch, with all of its mess, with all of its decay, with its transient nature of, of, of growth and in death and things going away, he saw that as an offense to the pure philosophical mind that dwelt on eternal things, which were really the good things. Plato, as well as Hindus, as well as the Gnostics who would follow later, uh, and a host, whole host of other philosophies and, and religions, even with variations within Jewish and Christian cultures, believe, would believe that the spirit world is good, that it is best, that it is true, and the physical world is bad or evil or of little to no value. When one could be released from their mortal bodies and free to live eternally as a spirit or as an unencumbered soul, then that would be heaven. Does that sound familiar? Spoiler number four, if you believe or if you answer the ultimate Christian hope to that question is to go to heaven when I die, to be free from this body, to, I guess, live in the clouds in some spiritual realm apart from the body, if that's what you believe, you actually have more in common with Plato than you do with the Scriptures, with Jesus, and what the New Testament teaches. But what is scary to me is that I think that is the common refrain for what Christians hope and believe, that I I go to heaven when I die. So many, even of our our evangelistic efforts, lead with that question. Do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? Well, then, can I tell you how to get to heaven? As it's this place way out there, and, and the Bible just doesn't teach that. Jesus never taught that. Creation, we learn, is not something bad. Creation was created, do you remember? Good. And humanity was created very good in the image of God. The Scriptures say that the fundamental limitation of this goodness and the distortion of this goodness is the presence of evil. And that a new world, a heaven and earth coming forth from the old will bring the reality of the longing of the hope that is deep inside us, that even creation, its cosmos, and the cosmos would be at last liberated, made new. I, or I guess actually Scripture that we're going to look at in just a moment, will share more detail to this end. So the first myth, to value the eternal or the spiritual over and against the material, the physical world. The second myth is that of evolutionary progress. This worldview believes that everything, history and, and, and everything in our physical world is moving, progressing towards an ever onward and upward better ending. That as we march on, things just get better and better and better. And that humanity can achieve a better future if it would just lean in, push forward, leverage all of its potential that it could make things better. How often? Even sometimes as Christians, we say if we just try a little harder, if we just work a little harder than things, we can make things different. 
There are many problems with the, the evolutionary progress worldview as one that just cannot explain the presence of evil in our world. And it can explain the host of many other problems, catastrophic problems that have happened through history and that seem to continue to happen. Progress is often subjective, too, to those in power. They define what progress is. If you examine the Scriptures, you find that the early Christians, they didn't believe in progress. They didn't think the world was getting better and better, even under its own steam, even under the steady influence of God. They just didn't think like that. They realized that God had to do something to bring change, to make things new that it wasn't going to happen on its own. Neither did they believe that things were getting worse and worse, and they certainly didn't think that the end goal was just to escape from this world, to go to somewhere else and leave the world to itself. They didn't believe that. In fact, Scripture says we're to be in the world, just not of it. So let me examine two truths, or, or two Scripture passages that will that will give a glimpse into the heart of the gospel and to what the Bible teaches as true hope. Over against these popular but mistaken worldviews we just look at, the central Christian message is that what the Creator God has done in Jesus, He is going to do for humanity and, in fact, for creation itself. Supremely through His resurrection, He tends for the whole world the whole world and the entire cosmos to find new life as well. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, we read these words. The Son Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things of heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the the body, the church, and He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. A firstborn gives you a sign that there's something more, something next to come, so that in everything He may have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, This is the gospel that you have heard and have been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, the Apostle Paul, have become a servant. The cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, are signposts to a very different kind of hope. How do we answer those two questions we posted earlier? What is the ultimate Christian hope? What is the hope for this world for change and renewal and transformation? I think the answer revolves around two words, redemption and resurrection. 
Redemption and resurrection doesn't mean scrapping what's there and starting again with a clean slate, but rather it's liberating what has been enslaved. Redemption and resurrection are not simply making creation a little bit better, as the optimistic evolutionist or the progressionist would share or suggest, nor is it rescuing spirits and souls away from this evil material world, as the Gnostics would say. Redemption and resurrection are the remaking of creation, the remaking of what was good, having dealt with evil and how it has defaced and distorted creation. And it will be accomplished by the same God who is now known in Jesus Christ through whom it was all made in the first place. Listen to Romans chapter 8. Paul again would say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For creation waits eager, an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the, ch- with the, of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been growing as in, groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if you hope for what you do not have, you wait for it patiently. That is like an eager patience, a longing, a waiting, a a hoping. I think this is why Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because now is hugely significant. Be full of hope. Because God who created what is good will redeem his creation. It has already begun. Christ has risen. He has sent his spirit. The church has a mission of expanding his rule and his will across this great planet. And God will bring all things to a glorious redeemed and resurrected reality in the marriage and the birth of a new heaven and a new earth. Now when we read the end of Revelation and we see that glorious scene, it makes sense because of we now know that is the hope and the future. Not flying away to somewhere else, but that we get to live with Him, with heaven and earth brought together. Friends, in just a moment, we will gather around the Lord's table, and Jesus is king. And as those magi who followed the light and came and found the Christ child, found the Messiah, the King, God himself, there was only one appropriate action, and that was worship. At this table, and when we take in this meal, the reality of the kingdom, the reality of transformation begins in us. It abounds as we learn to submit to God, to love God, and to love and submit to one another. Christ has risen. At this table, redemption and resurrection begin to play themselves out now among us, and we eagerly anticipate and hope 
for that great day where the full reality of resurrection gets manifest once for all. The cross and an empty tomb, a meal and a mission. Yes, there is hope. There is hope indeed. Because Christ, the Savior, has entered the world as Messiah and King, and we worship Him as Lord. A good journey, dare I say, a hopeful journey, begins with knowing where you are, but being willing to go somewhere else. Where will your journey of hope take you this next year? Would you pray with me? Father, we stand in all of your love and grace and mercy. We stand in all of how you burst into our reality, into our world, not as something abstract, but physically. Because, God, you love your creation. You love humanity. You love us. And, God, you want to see us free. You want to see us liberated. You want to see the reality of redemption and resurrection take its full measure. So, God, we thank you that it has already begun, and we anticipate in hope of how you will fulfill that promise in the future. God, grow our faith. Increase our obedience, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.